Hello friends, my name is Eric Cloward and welcome to the Stoic Coffee Break. I know the Stoic Coffee Break has been on hiatus for the last seven months, but I've decided that I want to bring it back online. And I've been doing a lot of growth and a lot of thinking, a lot of writing, and I find that I still have a lot more to say and a lot more that I want to share with my listeners. Now, normally my podcast is just me sitting down and talking about an aspect of Stoicism for about 10 to 15 minutes, but I want to change things up. I want to bring people on the podcast who have different experiences and ideas relating to Stoicism and just life in general that I find interesting that I think might be helpful for you. And this first episode is an interview with Donald J. Robinson. He's a cognitive behavioral therapist, psychologist, as well as an author. He's written several books on Stoicism. And this was really a lot of fun. So we talked about his new graphic novel called Verissimus, as well as we kind of wide ranging from a lot of talking about the early Stoics and a lot of the his- history behind things. And it was it was very enlightening for me. I definitely learned a lot from this interview and I really enjoyed it. And I hope that you enjoyed as well. And so without further ado, here is my interview with Donald J. Robinson. All right, everybody. Uh, this is something new for Stoic Coffee Break. Uh, What we're doing today is we're doing an interview with Donald Robertson. He is a psychotherapist with an emphasis in CBT, that's Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. He is the author of several books, including How to Think Like a Roman Emperor and Stoicism and the Art of Happiness. He's also a fellow of the Royal Society for Public Health. And what we're going to be talking talking about today is his latest book called Verissimus, which is a graphic novel about the... Uh, the life and times of Marcus Aurelius, one of the greatest emperors of Rome and a uh, celebrated Stoic. And I guess we're going to start right there. Um, is there anything else you would like to add to your biography? No, I think that sounds good. Oh, one other thing. I'm also the president and founder of the Plato's Academy Center. That's, that's I add right. that because that's my most recent project that I've been working on. Okay. And what it, can you give us like the, the uh, two-minute elevator speech on what that is? Yeah, we are proposing to build an international conference center at the original location of Plato's Academy in central Athens. Mm-hmm. And in order to okay. do that, we're building an online community for discussing the modern applications of classical philosophy. Excellent. Excellent. Wow. I didn't realize. I, I mean, I saw that in some of the things that I read on you, but I didn't know that it was actually wanting to build a full on conference center. So that's that's pretty ambitious. It is. All the best plans are pretty ambitious. Well, it's, a good, yeah. it's good to have an ambitious plan and combine it with small steps. So we're starting off by doing virtual conferences, which is something I've done for many, many years. And we're already on our second one now. Like we've got one coming up on the Socratic method. And the previous one uh, was on was called Ancient Philosophy Comes Alive. And uh, mm-hmm. you know we're going to run about four virtual events a year and then gradually start running more in-person events in Greece. Excellent. All right, so starting off on Verissimus, uh, got a couple of questions about that. Um, I guess, first off, what was the impetus for this novel? I mean, you had already written a book about Marcus Aurelius. And what, what was it that made you want to go to a graphic novel aspect? Because that's, that's definitely something unique. Well, there's a bunch of different reasons. But, you know, one way of explaining it is people... I've been writing about Stoicism. I, I started off... Um, 
getting into stoicism after doing my first degree in philosophy, which was a long time ago. It was about a quarter of a century ago, and I was like, but so it's kind of scary thought. Um, it was a long time ago, so I've been writing about stoicism for uh, quite a while. And then stoicism, this, I know this sounds like I'm saying I was into stoicism before it was cool, but it, people weren't that interested in stoicism back then. And then suddenly it became kind of trendy and it became a thing. And I think already we're starting to take it for granted that stoicism is a movement, but like 20 years ago it didn't exist as a, as a modern day movement. And, uh, that, you know, I kind of sat back and I watched that happen. And then people asked me to write books about it. Like I was writing books and publishers said, hey, you should write a book about this thing that's suddenly becoming really popular that you already write books about. And I thought, well, I can't because I've already written an introduction to Stoicism. I've written loads of articles about it. Um, so they wanted me to write an introduction, a kind of beginner's guide to Stoicism. And I thought, is there a way to say yes and no? Like, is there a way to do it without doing it? And I thought, first of all, I wrote How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And the way I did that was to write about Marcus Aurelius's life. Because I thought the way to do it is to focus on the, the character of a, a real ancient Stoic. That hadn't been done before. And I thought, actually, maybe that's a better way to introduce people to Stoicism. I knew from experience, I've got, quite, I've got a lot of teaching experience. I'm, I mainly worked as a trainer over the years as well as a cognitive therapist. So I kind of learned a bit about, you know, how to uh, teach people things, how to persuade them of things, you know, if you like, or how to resolve disagreements. So Stoicism, it, there's a couple of common misconceptions that people have about it. And we can cycle back to those later, but one of them is that being a Stoic means being unemotional or kind of cold. And the other one is that someone mentioned to me just yesterday, actually, the other common misconception is that Stoics are kind of passive and they would be, you know, they would be like doormats and let people trample all over them because they just accept everything. And those are both misconceptions. Now, you can argue with people about how that's not really what Stoicism teaches or what's written in the Stoic texts, but they'll tend to nitpick and argue back with you. And the easiest way to disprove those misconceptions is almost to be able to go, look, here's a Stoic, look at this dude, does he seem unemotional or politically passive? Right? And if you look at real Stoics from history, it just kind of knocks down these misconceptions completely. And I thought, okay, so like, who's the most famous Stoic? And that easily is Marcus Aurelius. And the obvious reason being, I, at first actually I thought about writing about Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, because there's some cool stories about him. But we know way more about Marcus Aurelius. The interesting thing is, I, this is another common misconception on the internet. There are people who have said to me, um, that they believe that we don't know anything about Marcus Aurelius, which they couldn't be more wrong. We know more about Marcus Aurelius than we do about any other, or more or less any other ancient philosopher, and certainly way more than we know about any other Stoic philosopher. And the reason was that he was a big deal back in the day. He was a Roman emperor. We have statues of him. Um, we have inscriptions about him. Yeah. We have his private correspondence. We have his legal rescripts, like showing his legislative agenda. And, you know, other people wrote about him and stuff. So we know a lot about him. So I thought, well, the Stoics themselves say the best way to learn about the subject is by having a role model. Seneca talked at length about this idea. So the weird thing is, although we have these 
books mm. and essays by them, they didn't think that was the best way to learn philosophy. They thought that was like a secondary value. The main thing was to look at an actual Stoic. And, uh, you know, they're all dead, the ancient Stoics, mm. unfortunately. But the, what we can do is kind of bring them <laughs> back to life by, you know, talking about what they actually did and stuff. So I wrote about Marcus Aurelius, and then I thought, to take that one step further, we could actually do a, a graphic novel about Marcus Aurelius. And my, really, I was asked to do these things. Um, a publisher, uh, an editor, asked me to, to write a graphic novel. And at that time, I, I hadn't read many graphic novels. I didn't know much about graphic novels. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's an advantage in life, uh, because the first thing I did, because I'm a little bit obsessive, was I went out and I found every book that I could about the art of writing graphic novels, and I read them all cover to cover. And the best one I read two or three mm -hmm. times, uh, which is Scott McLeod's Making Comics, incidentally. It's a superb book. And uh, there's a surprising nice. number of these books. And then I started doing it, and then I learned what most people learn who go through that process, which is that most of the other people who are already doing the thing don't seem to have read any of these books. <laughs> so you end up feeling like you, hang on, I now know more about this than a lot of the other people that are actually doing it for a living. Like I read, then I read other graphic novels and I thought, these guys don't seem to like know a lot of the techniques and stuff. So we, in a very short space of time, we kind of learned and I, I worked with a team of people that were more experienced. Um, and we started doing something which was a lot more work than I initially realized. Normally, you're given a year to write a book, but it took us about two or three years to do this, mainly because the artwork was quite ambitious and took a lot longer. The script only took six months to write, but it took about two or three years altogether to get the artwork uh, properly finished. Um, so yeah. we thought it was a better way to get stoic ideas across and maybe to reach a different demographic. So sometimes people think graphic novels because they're like comics or meant for kids. And that kind of irks people that are into that uh, genre or for or medium um, because really they, they're generally more aimed at adults but it does probably reach a slightly younger demographic like maybe late teens and stuff um, so i'm hoping you know people that maybe can't be, you know, aren't as drawn to prose books um, might find that this is a way to get into to stoicism it's a bit like watching a movie about stoicism yeah yeah, agreed. Um, I've always, so I started out as uh, in theater and music when I was in college. And to me, graphic novels always seemed like basically your storyboards that you were trying to do if you were putting together a film. And <clears throat> so I really, I enjoyed graphic novels. I have quite a few of them. Uh, I really like like the Sandman series from Neil Gaiman and stuff like that. So uh, I find them to be very interesting because they, they do a really good job of expressing in an image what you would normally just read about in a novel and so you get but you get the dialogue and that image really well so i think that i think they are very effective like you said of of being able to make it so that it's exciting so you you know that maybe those kids who would be like yeah I, okay there's this book about this philosopher or whatever but if you say hey here's a comic about this philosopher they might be like oh hey cool i can sit down in an afternoon or two and read through that and what it does for stoicism actually there's, there's a reason why it might be particularly important for stoicism which is that people who misunderstand stoicism tend to think of it, and they'll actually use the word inhumane. They think of it as a kind of cold and inhumane uh, philosophy. And one thing that having a movie or a graphic novel does is humanise it, like, as it should. So it makes it seem... Some people think it would be impossible to live like a stoic. But when you look at how Marcus Aurelius actually lived, it kind of 
takes the rough edges of it a, li a little bit and it makes it easier to visualise what it would mean like for somebody to, to be a stoic in practice and you know not necessarily perfect but to try and like uh, follow this as a guide to life and to do so consistently and successfully um, I should say the other thing that kind of was kind of bugging me when I was working on this I always um, thought Gladiator has the movie kind of intrigued me because um, I'm into Sword and Sandals stuff I guess and history mm -hmm. it stands out as like one of the few modern Sword and Sandals movies that actually kind of worked and, and really appealed to people it, it was kind of lightning in a bottle in a way um, somehow maybe Russell Crowe's performance or something you know there were attempts to recapture it but they didn't really succeed um, but it always disappointed me a little bit that there wasn't more stoicism even if there had just been maybe a couple more quotes from the meditations kind of woven into the that would have been awesome but when people watch gladiator a lot of them then went and read about marcus aurelius and the meditations i read somewhere that russell crowe was actually really into marcus aurelius and was kind of pushing to have ridley scott and the screenwriters put a bit more stoicism into the script but it didn't kind of turn out that way and so when i was writing the graphic novel I didn't want it to just be some talking heads and robes going on about philosophy. I wanted it to be like a cinematic epic, um, like Gladiator, but with more a lot more uh, stoic philosophy interwoven in the in the story. So we ended up um, as towards the end of writing, actually, suddenly dawned on me that it kind of comes across a bit like a prequel to Gladiator. Uh, it, it sort of ends round about where Gladiator begins, and. Uh, you know, we, there's a lot of action in it. I, I knew there was going to be a lot of action in the story, but by the time I finished it, I realised that there's, there's way more action in it and way more interpersonal drama than I, I kind of originally envisaged. But it just came out that way because that was already there in the Roman histories, but it didn't kind of seem vibrant and three-dimensional. You know, it's not as obvious in a way. But once we, you know, illustrated it, we suddenly... And then people started reading it. They said, wow... This is an epic story about huge battles, like dramatic, you know, Roman warfare and like really colourful characters. That, you know, someone said to me they didn't realise that Marcus was surrounded by so many really colourful, weird characters. And that those people, well, you know, when you look at a real person's life story, you realise that a person is kind of like a solar system. And that what defines somebody's life, in a sense, in part, are the you know the circle of friends that they have and the people that are around them, because that's what they're responding to. And in the meditations, there's something you know. I suppose that brings me back to, to making an observation about the a stylistic observation about the way that the meditations is written. I said this once, and someone took issue with it, but I'm going to say it again anyway, because I really believe it. The meditations is written in a very strange way, and, and for several reasons. And one of the odd things about it is that it's artfully vague. So, and there's definitely something strange about that. He, Marcus repeatedly refers to specific people or incidents, but he somehow does it in a very, still does it in a very vague way. So he mentions a letter that his mentor wrote to his mother. He doesn't tell us what was in it or anything, you know, like it's both specific and, and vague. The most famous passage in the meditations is a good illustration of this. Like the most widely quoted passage is the beginning of book two. 
his book one is where it's written in a different style it's where he talks about his family and friends and so the meditations proper begins with book two and so his opening spiritual exercise is to say every morning when you awake and tell yourself that you're going to meet meddlesome treacherous you know argumentative people and so on blah 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 that's probably one of the best known passages in the book therefore but he doesn't name any of these people right yeah like he you know so we project ourselves into that you know and that's partly why it's so popular people read it and they think that's just like that guy that works at the desk across from me or that's like my mother-in-law or you know that's like that guy I, I met in the in the pub the other day was meddlesome and annoying you know but who is marcus talking about if we're historians and we're really interested in his life we have to go he must have people in mind he's got to like when he says every morning awake and then rehearse these individuals but he doesn't fill that in for us and and so when people read the meditations there's something abstract about it we can kind of imagine being in Marcus Aurelius's head, but we don't really see what he's reacting to somehow. Then when you look at the Roman histories and you portray his story, it becomes obvious that he's surrounded by these really varied and colourful, dramatic individuals. And it, it really adds a whole depth, I think, to our understanding of some of the things that he's saying. It's good to have both the abstract version and this colourful three-dimensional version. Um, because the abstract version is easier for us to identify with and adapt to our own life. But when we see the people that he's surrounded with and we imagine him actually applying it to them, it humanises it and it makes it easier for us to understand um, how this philosophy could actually be applied consistently in practice, I think. Yeah, one of the things that interested me in kind of what you said is that... Um, I think a lot of people think that Marcus Aurelius kind of wrote that meditations as a book to give out. And it's like, no, that's not it at all. It's his personal journal. So he put a lot of things in there just to remind himself of these things yeah. he needed. The other thing also, I mean, I'm sure as emperor, he knew that at some point when he passed away that they would probably go through that and his journal would survive, which is probably why he kept things somewhat ambiguous because he wasn't out to destroy anybody or, you know, lambast anybody's reputation. But there were things, you know, he still wanted to keep some details so he could remember for himself. At least that's kind of my, always been my kind of outlook on why he wrote the way that he did. That's an interesting take. I I pretty much agree with you. I would interpret it slightly differently, but what you're saying is plausible. I'll qualify that and say something about history in general, which is um, I think all historian, ancient historians kind of take it for granted that, of course, we can't know 100% for certain what actually happened, unless we've got a time machine, right? Yeah. Um, and sometimes, I, honestly, people need to be reminded of that. So we are just kind of making educated guesses about what happened. Um, and so what you're saying is def is plausible. I'd, I've got a slightly different take, which is I agree that it probably wasn't meant for publication. And I, I, I'll tell you specifically why. Um, there's a number, first of all, there are a number of passages um, where Marcus says things that are too obscure, like he talks about conversations that he's had, or like I mentioned earlier, letters that he's read, which wouldn't mean anything um, to anybody else, except people that have those conversations or read those letters, which would only be him. Um, so it doesn't seem that that's intended for other people. And then also, he is he says kind of controversial things, arguably. he And sometimes it's quite subtle, but in, here's a, a little bit of a kind of a bit of trivia. In Roman society, 
Roman rhetoric was far more sophisticated than what we are used to today. Like Roman orators had a much more nuanced sense of language than any of us do today. And, you know, one of their favorite tactics was to slight an individual without even mentioning their name by praising someone else in a particular way. And that's a fair way, that's a well-known, fairly common strategy in Roman oratory. And so a really obvious version of it is if you say the current, like the, the new emperor is so intelligent and so merciful, that kind of implies that the previous emperor was cruel and stupid, yeah. right? And, yeah. and that was how it was received by the audience, right? Marcus does that. He, he definitely does it. Um, he praises his adopted father, Antoninus Pius, at extraordinary length, um, far more than anyone else uh, that he praises in the meditations. And not only that, he does it at, twi- at least twice. He does it again in the meditations later in the book as well as near the beginning. But he never mentions um, in book one where he's praising people, the Emperor Hadrian, who was Marcus's adoptive grandfather. Someone said to me recently, hey, Marcus barely knew Hadrian. That's not true. Marcus knew Hadrian pretty well. He lived in his house for about six months in the, in, during Hadrian's final days. Marcus was brought to live in his villa. Um, and Hadrian was Marcus's adoptive grandfather. Um, so he knew him towards the end of his life pretty closely. And he doesn't mention him by name there at all. Later, he only mentions Hadrian as an example of someone who of great status, who is now dead and buried as a kind of memento mori, and that's all he has to say about him. He doesn't have, Marcus thinks if you don't have anything good to say, then don't say anything at all. He has nothing good to say about Hadrian. Like, basically, Hadrian's final years were a car crash, um, where he had political purges, the Senate hated him, um, they almost uh, eradicated his name from records and refused to deify him. He, He escaped that by a hair's breadth. Um, so Marcus uh, doesn't praise him, but his failure to praise him would have been quite a provocative and controversial thing to do. And some of the other things he says, there's a passage in the meditations where, again, what he says is a bit cryptic, but there's, it's the only passage where he specifically mentions an enemy tribe by name. And he says, um, someone who takes pride in capturing Sarmatians, um, it's one of the, the people that he was at war with, as if they were um, fish in a net, has the character, the mindset of a brigand, he says. Now, that's a very odd remark, because um, it actually sounds like a condemnation of slavery, like the institution of slavery. The captured Sarmatians would have been optioned as slaves. Why? And when he says they have the mindset of a brigand, it kind of implies that what they're doing is immoral or unjust. It would be his own generals who were doing that. So it sounds like a criticism made against some of his own generals, perhaps in the past, for having uh, captured by their thousands summations and auctioned them on mass as slaves. Um, there's other things in the meditations that seem quite remarkable and that he probably wouldn't have want published. So I think you're right about that. Who, what happened to this book after he died? Um, it kind of seems counterintuitive that Commodus got it. Like, uh, some, it seems, it's very interesting to wonder, like, whose hands did this actually fall into? It should have been Commodus, but it may have been one of Marcus's other, 
one of his sons-in-law uh, one of his sons-in-law was a, an Aristotelian philosopher so you know for example it, he may have been a candidate and then we don't hear anything about it for a long time so I don't even think that they intended it to be published posthumously um, I think it may have been intended to be circulated privately and then eventually it just found its way into the public domain maybe centuries later yeah okay yeah it's that's the thing about history is and finding stuff like that you never know where it came from and it's hard oftentimes to verify the veracity of of claims based upon you know books that may or may not have been originally sent you know created that way and through the years and years of translations and handing them down I mean you hope that it's going to be as, as close to the original as possible but that's always always a challenge because it almost ends up being like a game of telephone yeah, I'll tell you another weird thing. That's always, uh, that's, I know there's certain things that kind of intrigue people about the meditations, and this is one of them. You know, uh, in, uh, Marcus wrote in Greek. So when um, most educated Romans at that time, by the way, were bilingual in, in Latin and Greek. So Mar Greek is the language of philosophy, and Marcus wrote in Greek. Um, but normally it wouldn't be, they didn't have the, the methods of citation that we have today. Um, so they, they wouldn't, for example, put quotation marks around things or necessarily say where a quote was taken from, especially Marcus seems to be writing informally. Um, so sometimes he says, as Epictetus said, and then it'll be followed by a, an obvious quote, sometimes we can see that he quotes people but doesn't attribute it and doesn't kind of highlight that it's a quote. And because only about 1% of classical literature survives, I think it would be sensible to presume that a lot of the other passages in the meditations are actually quotes from other authors or paraphrases from other authors. And the really intrigue, and so we attribute these quotes, we say, Marcus Aurelius said such and such. And maybe if we go back in time, Marcus Aurelius would say, no, I was just writing down something that Euripides said. Hmm. Like, you know, but the thing I was quoting from, is, is, you guys have never read. Like, and, uh, and, you know, I don't use quotation marks, so, you know, like, sorry about the confusion. Mm -hmm. But the really intriguing thing is he, the person he quotes most often is Epictetus. Mm -hmm. So Marcus probably viewed himself as a kind of follower of Epictetus, although he never met him in person. Um, but we, so we have the discourses of Epictetus, and we can see that Marcus is quoting several passages from that. However... We have four volumes of Epictetus's discourses. One of our ancient sources says that there were originally eight volumes. And Marcus also quotes stuff from Epictetus that we don't have in the surviving four volumes. So a really cool bit of detective work that we can do there is it seems possible that Marcus has read the missing volumes of Epictetus's discourses that we've never seen and that he's quote he's able to quote from those as well which then also raises the question maybe a lot of the stuff that we attribute to marcus aurelius is actually just him quoting epictetus or paraphrasing what he's read in those missing discourses so yeah we you know it's it's kind of we have to qualify uh some of the things that we we say we say marcus aurelius said this and that but at the back of our minds we should kind of bear in mind that there's some uncertainty there yeah, yeah, definitely could be. But I think it's great that, for me, I always loved the fact that here you have the Roman emperor who was the most powerful man at the time, and one of his idols, or one of the people that he quoted, like you said, quoted the most, was a slave. And yeah. I'm just like, that, that to me shows a lot of humility on his part, that he would look to somebody 
for the character that they are, for what they actually teach, rather than their status. He didn't care about their status. He cared about what can I get from this. He wanted that meat. He didn't want to, you know, have all the fluff around it. If that's something, so some people might think it kind of looks that way, and they may wonder, is is that really what's going on with Marcus? And actually, again, we can do some detective work, and we can point out there's other other instances where he does a similar thing. If you look really closely, so that book, one of the meditations we mentioned earlier, we said it's written in a different style. Marcus praises seventeen different people. They are friend, the family members or tutors, all of them. One of them is a, only one of them is a woman, his mother. He praises his stoic tutors, some of his rhetoric tutors. He doesn't praise his most famous teacher. Again, that would be really striking to Roman readers. So Marcus's most highly acclaimed teacher was the leading figure in a cultural movement called the Second Sophistic. He was literally a sophist, that was his profession. And his name was Herodes Atticus. And he was a controversial man. He was accused and acquitted though of kicking his pregnant wife to death. So he was a notoriously violent and bad-tempered billionaire um, orator, like the kind of the opposite of Marcus in many ways, like this quite troubled figure. And uh, he was a family friend though of Marcus's uh, family, a very powerful individual in, in Greece. And uh, but Marcus never mentions him at all in the meditations. Again, if you can't say anything nice, then don't say anything at all. He yeah. leaves this most famous of all his teachers out. But the first teacher that Marcus praises is a trophaeus, which means like a, almost like a nanny. So he would have been probably almost certainly a slave um, or a former slave in his family household who would have. Um, been like a kindergarten teacher to Marcus when he up until about the age of six um, and uh, Marcus says so you imagine how long ago this is you know Marcus is writing this in, in his 50s um, and he's remembering a guy that he knew when he was a small child and he says you know like the qualities that this guy taught him he remembered his whole life so he praises this guy who's he doesn't even remember the guy's name, like, but he was a slave in his family household and he doesn't praise Herodes Atticus. So if Herodes Atticus had ever read that, he would have freaked out. <laughs> like, he went, you, you, you ignore me yeah. and praise yeah. this nameless slave yeah. as one of your best teachers. And so the fact that Marcus does that, I think echoes what you've just said about the, you know, him taking Epictetus, a former slave, as his uh, hero and role model. Yeah, and I can agree with that. For me, when I first kind of stepped into learning about Stoicism, Epictetus was the one that just really clicked for me the most. You know, I'd just read something by him, and it would just be like, yeah, just just one of those parts that really clicked. Um, and so for a while, he was kind of my favorite. And then you know, I'd read some stuff by Seneca and be like, oh, man, you know what? Seneca's got some really great insights here, and he articulates them exceptionally well. And then, I, you know, it's kind of moving back and forth between them. But what I do find is that I like different things about each of them, and I can appreciate the the different depth and nuances that they bring to these ideas. There's some drama there, historically, that a lot of people don't know about. Um, so Marcus never met Epictetus, but some of Marcus's teachers probably knew Epictetus. There's a kind of overlap continuity between these three famous Romans. 
Marcus never mentioned Seneca in, the, in his letters. Epictetus never mentioned Seneca. And I think that's because probably Seneca wasn't popular with the other Stoics because he supported Nero and they saw Nero as a, a, a tyrant in, in Seneca, in a sense, perhaps as a kind of traitor uh, to their, their principles. I Epictetus was a posh slave. He was a slave, but he uh, was the slave of Nero's Greek secretary, um, a guy called Epaphroditus. And he, uh, Epictetus mentions in passing something about writing uh, formal letters. So it may have been that he worked as a scribe uh, for the Greek secretary of Nero originally. Um, so it wasn't like he was a slave in the mines or something like that. He was an educated, that was, helps to explain how he's so kind of well-read and educated as well. He's an educated slave. But uh, Epaphroditus was the, the guy who instigated the political purge that led to Seneca's execution. So Epictetus had a ringside seat observing the fall of Seneca. And uh, in the discourses, I mean, it's kind of a bit implicit you you know you need to like know a lot about the political context and the history to really get the some of the illusions that epictetus is making but i think it's pretty clear that epictetus sides with what we call the stoic opposition he hero worships the guys who stood up to nero like the stoics so epictetus who was kind of on the periphery of this like the his owner was the guy that basically caused seneca to get executed he um he clearly, he never mentioned Seneca. He probably doesn't think much of Seneca. And he really idolizes the guys like Thrasea who walked out in protest against uh, Nero. And uh, I think when you're reading Epictetus, you've probably noticed where Epictetus's tone, first of all, is very different from Seneca's. Yeah. Also, uh, here's a bit of trivia that not a lot of people may know about Stoicism. Maybe they'll find this helpful if they're, they're kind of getting deeper into the subject. The, the Stoic school, there's one author who tells us that the Stoic school divided into three branches, um, the la represented by the followers of the last three scholars, the last three heads of the, the Stoic school. And if you read, like those people who read the meditations, Seneca, Epictetus, and, and kind of feel like, they, they complement each other, but they're slightly different. It's probably because they represent different branches of Stoicism that had divided by that point in history. I would say, though, that I think Marcus Aurelius sees himself as following Epictetus largely, and that the two of them are probably in a different branch of Stoicism from, from Seneca. I think um, there's also a couple of passages where um Seneca lists his favorite philosophers in one letter weirdly and he kind of lists the stoic uh the founders of stoicism but he doesn't list any of the cynic philosophers like Diogenes the cynic and he does list Plato so he was probably a follower of middle stoicism which is a branch of stoicism that tried to integrate stoicism more with Platonism and Aristotelianism and it was kind of more a more urbane, moderate version of Stoicism. Whereas Epictetus you, seems like an Old Testament prophet, but there's something old school and basic about him. He goes on and on about Diogenes the Cynic and how much he admires him. 
Um, I think it's pretty clear that Epictetus was more old school and represented a branch of Stoicism that admired the Cynic tradition more, this more austere philosophical tradition. And he doesn't really have anything positive to say about Plato. Generally, when he talks about Plato's followers, he's, he's quite hostile towards them. So I think what we see there is a division between this more urbane Stoicism represented by Seneca and this more kind of old school kind of austere, cynic-oriented stoicism that we see represented by Epictetus. But again, the surprising thing that of those two branches, Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, chooses to embrace the stricter, more austere, like, cynic tradition. The, the cynics were like uh, like beggars, basically. They modeled yeah. themselves on beggars. Yeah I, yeah, I can definitely agree with that. The terseness of Epictetus is something that I can appreciate at times because it's not as... He's not as flowery and he just tries to keep it much more clear and, you know, hey, this is how it is. But he also has, uh, to me, he has a pretty good sense of humor that he mixes in there as well, which we don't find with a lot of the other Stoics. And that's one of the things that I liked about him was, you know, every now and then he just tossed something out of like, well, you know, yeah, this guy said something terrible about me. But if he knew the real story, it had been so much worse. He could have gone on forever. And I just, that's right. that that's just it. cracked me up. I'm like, that's, that's that a guy who doesn't take himself too seriously. There's also, people say that there's not a lot of humor in Marcus Aurelius. And I kind of have the sense that, that Marcus actually was a kind of good humored guy, but not one for cracking a lot of jokes. He comes across in his private letters, his personality comes across completely differently. Like, he just seems incredibly affectionate and very warm, like a great friend and very emotionally intelligent guy as well in, in his letters. Different from how he comes across in the meditations, really. But I'll tell you something, a weird bit of trivia. It took me a while before I actually noticed this, but there are jokes in meditations. And there's one in particular, there's a kind of uh, scatological, like, quite coarse joke in the meditations and he takes it from marcus mentions that he really likes what they call old comedy which is this more kind of slapstick coarser um abrasive uh, tradition in, in, in greek comedy and he quotes this joke about some guy that's so rich and has so many possessions that he doesn't have anywhere left to take a shit <laughs> like and you, you like when you read that, you kind of think this, you know, like this is like obviously this is like one of Marcus Aurelius' favorite jokes, right? And he's put it in the meditations, and you would never have kind of guessed that, right? Like, I mean, these things play differently in Roman society or Greek society, but there are there's, there's a kind of relatively coarse joke in there that obviously he liked so much he wrote down and put in his notes. Yeah. And it has a kind of philosophical meaning for him. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, he, strangely, we wouldn't think of this much today, but, you know, you can see how jokes like that communicate something that resonates with the cynic philosophy and renouncing wealth and stuff. And, uh, you know, so for Marcus, comedy and philosophy are not two separate things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, getting back to some of my questions here. Um what principle do you find in Stoicism that is the most useful in your life? Well, you know, I'm pretty into Stoicism, have been for a long time. So I'm going to say that the, what I think is the central uh, principle of Stoicism 
is the most important thing. So the first book I wrote about stoicism, I listed all the psychological techniques, or strategies or principles that I could find in stoicism. And there were about like 18. So there are more psychological techniques in stoicism than people normally assume, actually. There's like a, a whole toolbox. Um, of those, the, what they consider to be the most fundamental one is the one that I think is, is most important, which is this doctrine that virtue is the only true good. And, you know, I weirdly, I, I say that in part because in modern evidence-based psychotherapy, we have actually very similar ideas. But one of the things that emerges from modern behavior therapy is this idea that there's something wrong um, with the way that we assign value to things, like something really deeply at an underlying level wrong with the way that we impose value judgments on our experience. You know, and it's hard to explain because it's kind of technical thing. So psychotherapy ends up becoming quite philosophical, like if we're tackling things at that level. So for instance, when we treat clients with clinical depression today, one of the treatments of choice is a thing called behavioral activation. And it consists in teaching people to focus more on what we call intrinsic values. So the value of their own character traits, the type of person that they want to be, rather than on ex extrinsic value or the outcome of their actions. So we, because there's evidence that shows that people who are severely depressed and also some people with certain types of anxiety disorder tend to be more caught up in um, the results or the outcomes of their actions, like future goals and less focused on um, the, their own character traits. And it seems to be, it seems to contribute more to emotional resilience when people say, like, the most important thing to me in life is to try and be a good father or to exercise integrity, like, or to pursue or to seek wisdom. Like, whether or not I succeed, the main thing is the intention, the effort. Like, and if I can say today I really tried to, like, you know, learn some profound stuff, then I'll, I'll die satisfied. But if your goal is to be the most famous person in your in your business or to have the biggest house in your, in your street or whatever, those types of goals are psychologically problematic for many people. Um, they can they can leave them exposed to uh, depression or uh, anxiety if they're not careful. And so that stoic doctrine to me is, is really fundamental. It pervades everything else. And it is really what ties the whole philosophy together. Cicero says that's the cornerstone of what the Stoics are actually teaching. It's their ethic. Um, but also the first thing that I started teaching people was a Stoic technique called the view from above. And I still have a kind of soft spot for, for that. I think it's one of the most useful uh, psychological exercises that they describe. And the view from above, which Marcus talks about many, many times, is this idea of expanding your awareness to picture your life from a broader spatial and chronological perspective, almost like one of the gods looking down from Mount Olympus. Can I tell you another little bit of trivia here that people who are reading the meditations maybe maybe won't be familiar with? So I spent a lot of time in Greece, and, and Athens is kind of like a, a second home to me. Um, for a long time, when I was reading the meditations, there's a famous passage where Marcus said, the, the mind free from violent passions is like an impenetrable citadel. It's, it's quite a widely quoted passage, right? Mm -hmm. And a couple of things that intrigued me about that. Um, I thought, what is the word for citadel that's being translated from Greek there? I couldn't quite figure out uh, 
like what that would say. And I just never got around to checking the original Greek manuscript. Like I normally do it for other passages. And then one day, eventually, I guess I had some time in my hands and someone mentioned this to me and I thought, I'm going to go and look that up. It's kind of bugging me. And I looked it up and I was surprised to find that the word he uses is Acropolis in Greek. And it hit me because I already knew that in one of the other passages where he's describing the view from above, he says, imagine that you're looking down on people trading on law courts, you know, and them squabbling and getting married and divorced and political assemblies. And he says, imagine you're looking down on agoras, is the word that he uses. Now, the Acropolis looks down on the agora in Athens. So when you put those two passages side by side, it's very tempting. And I, I actually, I would say someone reading that in Greek would be bound to think that he, although he hadn't actually been there at the time, as far as we know, that he had in mind the view from the Athenian Acropolis looking down on the agora the Agora was a place where so much historical drama happened. Apart from all the things he describes, Marcus would have known that the Athenian Agora was where Socrates was put on trial, uh, imprisoned and executed. Like So the most iconic event in the history of philosophy unfolded there, and that's what he's describing looking down on, I think, uh, in those passages. So... The view, that's a you know the view from above in a nutshell is kind of the this is the view from the Parthenon which is the temple of the goddess Athena the goddess of wisdom so it's this kind of divine enlightened perspective that looks down on all the drama of history like from a, a detached a broader point of view and again that has a lot of resonance in modern psychology you know it's like all my friends who are psychologists and CBT practitioners are immediately their their ears prick up like when they read about this technique, because there's something in it that they recognize as being relevant today. We know that when people experience strong emotion, particularly anger, anxiety, to some extent depression as well, they, there are psychological changes. The brain goes into a different mode of functioning. And one of the features that's been studied for many years is a narrowing in the scope of attention or selective cognitive bias as well, selective attention. Um, so people become narrowed down in ways that they don't even realize. The more they get angry, the more they get anxious. Um, and the Stoics understood that, and they understood that to protect ourselves against that, to make ourselves more resilient, the obvious countermeasure is to train yourself to expand your perspective, like, yeah. rather than allowing anger or anxiety to narrow it down. Yeah. If when you're angry and someone does something to upset you, you kind of forget about everything else and get tunnel vision for the the bits of their behavior that are most annoying and so anger becomes circular you you pay more attention to the things that make you more angry and then you ignore anything else that might moderate your anger so this guy calls you a name you forget everything else you know about the guy and just focus on the fact that he called you an idiot but maybe the guy helped an old lady across the road earlier in the day you know or maybe you and he were friends for many years in the past or maybe you know that he's having a really hard time and that might help to explain his behavior but when you're angry you kind of exclude all that information like and just respond to the single bit of data like the that provokes you and the stoics realized that people do that and they thought we need to train ourselves not to do that like by trying to picture people's characters in a more complete and rounded way by picturing events uh, in, in, in a wider context. They also thought that's how Zeus sees things. 
So they tried to imagine how would Zeus see the universe? How would the gods see things? They would see all of space and time. And so all the things that like the death of Socrates, although it seems infuriating and unjust and tragic to Zeus, of course, you know, it would just be one tiny um, stitch in the tapestry of world history. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a really interesting exercise. And from my own experience, I can definitely, yeah, definitely uh, relate to that narrowing of vision. I know that when I get angry, I get focused on, you know, something hyper-focused on what they said or the way that they looked or what they didn't do, or what did you mean by that? And, and it's just, yeah. So when you're describing that, I could just go, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, been there, been there. Totally understand that situation. But I never thought about the idea of keeping a macro perspective in a way to combat that narrowing of the vision. Um, it, but that I think that fits right along with uh, lately. One of the things I've been working on is acceptance. You know, just purely accepting myself, accepting other people for exactly who they are, accepting the world as it is. And that to me, I find almost gives me a bit of that kind of macro vision in a way, because I'm not trying to change all the little things. I just go, this is how life is. And I'm just accepting this for what it is. I may not like it, may not love it, but this is what it is. And work functions the other way around as well, because we know that um, selective attention is going to prevent acceptance. Um, because what you're doing is kind of putting the, this unpleasant or provocative part of your experience under a magnifying glass. So you're making it harder for yourself to tolerate it. Um, you're intensifying it by, you know, cutting out things that, that might dilute it or, or moderate it from your scope of attention. Um, and so broadening, so what tends to happen, I, I, I guess what I'd, actually what I'd like to say, the most common thing in therapy, you'll find that um, people with anxiety or depression or whatever, they tend to vacillate between two opposing ways of responding to unpleasant experiences. So they either ruminate about them or they suppress them. They either like, be like become overly uh, entangled with them or they avoid try to avoid contact with them through suppression or whatever. And these are both toxic, maladaptive ways of coping. And so what will happen is people will worry about something, they'll dwell on it, they'll ruminate about it, they'll overthink it, and then that will freak them out. And then they'll think, I need to kind of block this out, um, just block it from my mind or use drugs or alcohol to block it or try and distract myself. Like, And that doesn't work either because that prevents them from engaging in normal, healthy emotional processing. Like, and it causes other problems. So then they revert back to overanalyzing it and becoming entangled. And then that freaks them out, so they revert back to avoidance. And so what's missing is some kind of third way, like some alternative that's neither entanglement nor avoidance. And that comes by accepting the unpleasant experience and not avoiding it, but broadening your scope of attention so that it doesn't seem as intense and overwhelming um and again like the stoics i it's a, it, it genuinely there's not many things i don't want to be like um i try to avoid uh, sensationalizing history i guess um you know so i wouldn't normally say i can't believe that you know that these guys are way ahead of their time like um i'm reluctant to say that but i the stoics were uh way ahead of their time with regards to their cognitive psychotherapy they understood things that Sigmund Freud had no sweet idea about. Yeah. Carl Jung didn't have the faintest idea about. 
um, that it's only really with over the last 40, less than that, but actually some of these ideas only really over the last 20 or 30 years have been started to be fully appreciated in the field of modern psychotherapy, and yet the Stoics understood them 2,000, 2,300 years ago. It's amazing. Yeah, and for me, what what really pulled me into Stoicism was um, kind of a number of things. Uh, when I was younger, I had uh, kind of studied some Buddhist philosophy. I really liked Zen Buddhism. I was kind of drawn to that. But there was kind of a mystic, mystical side of it that I didn't quite, it didn't really jive with me. And so while I liked a lot of the principles, there was just, you know, like Zen Cohen's and other stuff like that were just a little too far out there for me. Um, yeah. But I liked some of the basic ideas and having grown up in a very fundamentalist religion, I grew up Mormon. And once I finally left that because it, it made me miserable in my life. And, it, you know, I just ha I, so I was always a little bit wary of religion. And um, a number of years ago, Tim Ferriss had mentioned a book called I think it was called The Art of Stoic Joy by Donald Irvine and how it was one of his favorite books and changed his life. And I'm like, OK. Tim reads a lot of books. If he says this is one of his absolute favorites, I'll take a look at it. I read it and like, okay, that was pretty good, but it didn't like sink in. And then I got the audio book and listened to it on the way to work every day. And so that, that 20 minutes of just kind of getting that little chunk each day, yeah. it started to sink in and it would just, and then I think about it while I was at work and it was just like over the time I found that this was something that made sense to my brain of how the world actually works or at least how I actually work in this world and something I can actually apply in a way that works and having grown up in a religion where they say if you live like this you'll be happy and I lived like that and I was miserable yeah. to find something that actually had returns where I said if I do these things I feel better and I like myself more my life is happier it's just like okay I'm sold on this this is this is this is gold for me. I think that's a guide to the good life by Bill Irvine. And uh, it's one of the first books in Stoicism, one of the first modern books in Stoicism. And uh, yeah, it was one of the first ones, first modern books that, that I read. There weren't many around at the time that that book came out, actually. Yeah. Um, what you remind me of is over the years, I've spoken to thousands of people that are interested in Stoicism through the conferences that we run and the courses and things like that. And I noticed certain typical things that they'll say, like, how did you get into Stoicism, uh, I'll ask. And they'll say, well, it, to them, it was a secular alternative to Christianity mm -hmm. in many cases, which is weird because ancient Stoicism was bound up with ancient Greek theology, but they see it. Nevertheless, it is mainly a rational philosophy, so they see mm -hmm. it as a, a rational alternative to Christianity. And uh, they see it as a Western alternative to Buddhism mm -hmm. that's less kind of, uh, exotic or esoteric. Like, you remind me of when I was a kid, I studied world religions. And when I was a teenager, it was one of the first things that I did. I remember reading the Tao Te Ching, I think it was, and it said running a state is like frying small fish. And I thought, that sounds really cool, but I have no idea what this guy's talking about. Yeah. You know? And then I read the Stoics and I thought, most of the stuff that Seneca and Epictetus are saying like seems fairly down to air. I can actually understand this. It's not as mysterious to me. It has a kind of deja vu quality. It's more familiar with the cultural norms that are familiar. Yeah. People say they see, they get into stoicism because they see it as a more philosophical alternative to cognitive therapy or modern self-help. So they see it as broader in scope. They, they, they'll say, I did CBT and I found it really useful, but I wanted to figure out how could I turn it into a kind of philosophy of life? Well, stoicism gives you a framework for doing that. 
or they'll say they studied academic philosophy, maybe they did a philosophy degree, but it seemed very um, theoretical, very abstract, very scholarly, and not very practical. And they say so Stoicism offers to them a more practical and down-to-earth alternative to, to modern academic philosophy. Mm-hmm. So those are, I think, the reasons that I hear over and over and over again as to why people end up getting into to Stoicism. And then I think the internet, there were people all over the world who had read the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius. I remember there was a time when people would say they really loved the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, but they didn't even realize that he was a Stoic. Like that was common 20 years ago. They'd say, what is Stoicism? I, I just know that I like this book. I didn't know that was even the name of the philosophy. Because he doesn't really, he only mentions Stoicism in passing once in the book, right? He doesn't, he doesn't uh, refer to Stoicism very often. So often they, did, they didn't even realize. Now, then the internet came along and people start to form online communities on Reddit and Facebook and stuff like that. Now, this, what I sometimes call this, this kind of Stoic diaspora, these people who were into Stoicism all over the world who had never met each other, like suddenly met each other online. Because yeah. before, the millions of copies of the meditations had been sold and people, many people had read Seneca and Cicero and Epictetus. But they just never kind of hung out together. Like it just never occurred that they would all kind of go and be in a room together talking about it. But the internet allowed that to happen. That's why, in the space of twenty years or so, suddenly stoicism went from being this kind of almost forgotten kind of it was an academic uh, thing that only really academic philosophers talked much about. Like now, it's almost like we're you know I think we're going to get to the point soon where it's going to be the, the answer to uh, a census question. Like, you know, we're going to have, mm-hmm. no, I remember the Stoic community, it's a thing now. Like, <laughs> they were all out there, but yeah. they just hadn't bonded together to form a community, and the internet made that happen within the space of a few years. Yeah, it's interesting for me on my podcast, um, I will get emails and, you know, messages from people all over the world, you know, telling me, I mean, uh, you know, Poland, Finland, Latvia, uh Brazil. I had some people contact me from Brazil saying, hey, can we take your podcast and translate it into Portuguese because this is so good and we want to share it with our friends who don't speak English and, you know, just all over the place. And it's it's pretty wonderful that it is such a universal philosophy and idea because it just speaks to life as it is, not some idealistic thing out there, but just, hey, this is how life is as best we can see it and this is how to get by and it's universally applicable it's really weird the um the kind of demographics of stoicism like the places where stoicism is most popular are major metropolitan cities like london toronto new york um it's not popular in athens i love athens i spend a lot of time there but my my athenian friends are like stoic what like, why are you into Stoicism? And I said to them, dude, this is where Stoicism comes from. And they're like, ah, you know, we're, we're not really, you know, like on board with that yet. It's, they're not interested particularly. Some Greeks are, but it's not as, as anybody was big. Um, and then there's countries like Stoicism is quite big in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. It's big in Brazil. Um, it's popular in Spanish. Um, it, for some weird reason, it's not popular in France. Like, it's, it's strange. The country is fairly, it's getting pretty popular in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, a couple of my books have been translated into Japanese. How to think like a Roman emperor has been translated into 18 languages. 
Nice. So I had to write the preface recently um, for, or I had to write foreword for my first book in Stoicism, which is um, the philosophy of CBT and Japanese, the Japanese edition. And I kind of wrote some uh, stuff kind of reflecting on it. I thought, geez, I don't know what to write because I don't really know that much about Japanese culture. Um, so I kept trying to come up with something. Um, and the, the uh, editor, uh, the translator um, sent a, an email back to me and he said, that's, that's really th great. Thanks very much for your help, Mr. Robertson. You know, really useful. He said, but there's just one, one small thing. Um, and I said, you know, what is it? And he said, well, you know, you said um, Stoicism uh, until now hasn't really been very popular in Japan and it's beginning to become more. And he says, that's not true. He said, that, you know, there are some really popular books on Stoicism that have come out in Japan. They're just not really known in the West. Um, and so I had to change that part because mm -hmm. I'd underestimated how popular Stoicism was in Japan. Yeah. And, and for me, that's I can see why that wouldn't be a surprise because uh, my brother went on a mission to Japan and he talked about how, you know, you like you would get married Shinto, um, but, you know, you're you'd have like different Buddhist uh, ceremonies that be part of your life and so on. And Zen Buddhism is still a very, you know, popular philosophy over there. And I think that kind of the influence of Zen Buddhism would resonate with people once they read Stoicism, because it is it's a more like we said, it's a little more rational, a little less woo woo. Um, but the Japanese don't have much of a problem with kind of integrating different things into their culture from different religious or philosophical ideas. At least that's the, the impression that my brother gave me on that. Um, so I can, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I think that's, that would, that would make sense to me anyway. I think there's a kind of, you know, link um, between stoicism and martial arts and military culture. The, Kind of also is found in Eastern philosophy to some extent, but not so much in Christianity mm -hmm. uh, or Islam, perhaps. Like not in the same way, anyway. Like so, I think that's another kind of vague parallel. But also, the weird thing is that historically, um, there was some. It's pretty obscure, but there, there were uh, some communication uh, between East and West in the ancient world. There's one ancient source that claims that Socrates had a conversation with an Indian trader. That's it's a really obscure uh, source, mm -hmm. but there's like a little hint, like one reference to uh, Socrates meeting an, an Indian merchant. And uh, also Alexander the Great took philosophers with him on campaign, like, and he uh, colonized uh, the north of India. And there's references in the Buddhist tradition to uh, Greek kings. And, uh, you know, we know the Greeks called Indian holy men, the Gymnosophoi, uh, the naked wise men. One of Mark, this is a bit of, this is really obscure, but one of Marcus Aurelius's teacher, teachers um, were told, traveled all around the Middle East and he went to Egypt and we're told that there he met Gymnosophi, which is usually the word that's used to refer to Indian sages. Like it's possible they were Indian merchants that re that had travelled to uh, North Africa. I think I think we're told it was in Egypt. Um, so in that case, there's a kind of tenuous connection that Marcus knew a guy who knew who had maybe spoken to, to Indian philosophers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, kind of with that idea of martial arts that you had mentioned, uh, there was a book I picked up uh, about a year ago. 
called The Way and the Power. And it was fascinating for me because it's it's a discussion of Japanese swordsmanship. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the principles and ideas in that are just incredibly powerful, but match up very well with stoicism. And, you know, uh, so for me, it was just really fascinating seeing how these universal principles are there. It's just how do you express them and what's going to click for different people? Well, like, I mean, I guess a good way of explaining it, and maybe this is is true of other cultures as well, um, because of the Industrial Revolution, in a way, like we think of our society is fragmented in a way that the ancient world wasn't, right? So, you know, I'm, yeah, I often end up taking, you know, showing people archaeological ruins and stuff in Greece. We're organizing an event in Greece at the moment in September uh, through the Plato's Academy Center and stuff. And often I find that I have to kind of explain to people that in ancient Greece and to some extent in ancient Rome, um, religion and dance and military training and philosophy weren't completely separate things. Like uh, the religious temples in Greece were places where music festivals and athletic contests were also held. They were all kind of jumbled together. And uh, so Marcus Aurelius and, and really, probably, you know, most ancient philosophers were, were martial artists in, mm-hmm. in that sense. They did, Marcus, we know, trained in boxing, wrestling, and the Pankratian, and also in swordsmanship. Um, we're told that in the Historia Augusta, for example. And, and then that's kind of confirmed by the meditations indirectly, because you can see in the meditations there are many references to wrestling and swordsmanship and, you know, things well, a few scattered references to these things. It seems like it's something he's pretty familiar with. Um, so, you know, Marcus didn't, the, the training that he had in dance and in wrestling and boxing would have been bound up with religious symbolism uh, for him. Uh, so, you know, not separate in the way that we tend to view these things uh, today. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we can definitely say in a, in a kind of obscure sense, Marcus, so- Socrates, most of these philosophers had some experience of uh, Greek and Roman martial arts. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. I know that be, I, I th- I'm sure that some of it came through with the discipline necessary to be able to learn those things. I wrestled in high school and the school where I was at was one of the best in the state. And I was like, you know, six, seven string because it was just that competitive. But the discipline to do something like that was really helpful for the rest of my life because I recognized that I could see my limit and push past that. And, you know, where I thought my limit was of how hard I could, I could you know, work out at practice or how hard I could, you know, work in a match and stuff like that. And then being able to push even further past that really helped cement some things in my life i'll tell you what's really interesting marcus compares wrestling in several ways wrestling boxing pancratian these martial arts he compares in several ways to to philosophy but perhaps the most important comparison is found in i think it's in posidonius a fragment from posidonius like an earlier stoic philosopher um and i think that this comes up kind of indirectly in some of the other stoic writings as well that they compared um Greek and Roman wrestling to um, specifically 
to what the Stoics, or at least what Epictetus calls prosoche, which is kind of their word for mindfulness. Um, if you go to Greece now, you'll see the word prosoche everywhere. Uh, it's the title of one of Epictetus's discourses. But if you had a, you know those signs that have a picture of an Alsatian and they say, beware the dog or whatever, like in Greece it will say prosoche, uh, skilos. Right, so prosoke means pay attention, watch out, beware. This is the word that the Stoics used for mindfulness or paying attention to their own actions, uh, particularly their own value judgments and how they use their mind. And they compare that to the stance of a wrestler, which is very interesting mm -hmm. comparison. So the Greek wrestling stance was very stylized. It involved stretching your arms out quite far in front of you, as if you're kind of like sending sending out uh, uh, antennae, you know, like sensing out uh, your opponent. And they said that's what the mind of the philosopher is like, like as if he's prepared to uh, sense uh, the attacks of fortune. Interesting. He's ready for them uh, in advance. He's highly attuned mm -hmm. uh, to what experience is uh, throwing at him. Interesting. So, kind of taking that a little bit further, what do you what do you do in your life to make sure that you're cultivating that kind of mindfulness and you know doing what the Stoics tell us to do? There's a bunch of Stoic exercises that I do quite frequently, and um, I mean sometimes I'll I'll listen to audio recordings, which kind of help. I mean th this is kind of secondary stuff, but I think it's important. I, I'm lucky because I get to spend almost all of my time reading about, researching, and talking about Stoicism. And that, but that helps. I mean, even when uh, that wasn't my main job, like, you know, when I, when I was a student and stuff, I kind of saw reading Stoicism as, as being like reading scripture. You know, I, I'd kind of make a point to spend like an hour a day or whatever, like reading, because I felt it was healthy for me, it was benefiting me. So the activity of reading to some extent. But of course, there are contemplative practices. There are, you know, values. There are ways of living um, that we can also follow, and there are many of them. We describe, I describe them in my books, and also the Modern Stoicism Nonprofit Organization. I'm one of the founders of it. It has a thing called Stoic Week that runs every year that helps people to kind of follow a daily routine of Stoic practices. Um, so there'd be things like preparing each day for the day ahead, like a thing that a Stoic in the past would have done, we think, is to wake up each morning and kind of mentally rehearse the day ahead and rehearse in advance, having a philosophical attitude towards the people that they're probably going to meet and the things that are potentially going to happen, um, particularly rehearsing their own death pretty frequently. I think the, one of the master techniques of Stoicism, though, is the view from above, because it potentially incorporates some of the themes from these other exercises. And I'll, I'll try and practice mindfulness throughout the day as well. We're also told from multiple sources that the, from the multiple sources, by the way, are Seneca, Epictetus, and Galen. And Galen was Marcus Aurelius' physician. They, um, they, but all of them uh, describe doing a Pythagorean technique that involves at the end of each day asking yourself three questions before you go to bed and the the questions are basically what have i done well what have i done badly and what could i do differently next time like so you're supposed to kind of review your progress each day 
and then try and extract learnings from it that you can then rehearse the following morning and put into practice. So these are things that I, I, I try to do consistently. And, and then there are like a whole bunch of other uh, stoic exercises that we potentially, you know, do in a kind of ad hoc basis. There are many verbal stoic exercises. Um, and like for, and I think many, again, many people don't realize how practical stoicism is. So Epictetus in particular, who's a very direct guy, as you know, if you look very closely, he'll often tell his students specifically to say certain phrases. Um, so in, in modern cognitive therapy, that's kind of like what we call coping statements or self-instruction training, like specific things that you would say to yourself. So like one of them is, um, he says when you're getting upset, you should say, you should talk to the impression, which I take me a little while to explain, but this is very similar to um, a very well-known technique that we call cognitive distancing today. So you should talk to the, a very important technique, and you should talk to the impression and say, you're just an impression and not at all the thing you claim to represent. Uh, if someone's angering you, you should say, it seemed right to them. You know, the, there's all these little figures of speech that he tells his students to, to practice. So that's another part of Stoic practice, I think. Um, one of them, actually, there's a famous saying when Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, this is perhaps one of the very earliest Stoic sayings, comes from Zeno, probably from a book written by Zeno called his Memorabilia of Crates. So Zeno originally trained in Cynic philosophy, and uh, he was taken to the Keramicus, which is this area uh, in central Athens beside the Agora. It's a cemetery. Um, it's also the Potter's district, but it's also where prostitutes plied their trade. Um, and Crates took Zeno there because he was socially anxious, and he asked him to carry around a bowl of lentil soup, which would have been a pretty weird thing to do in that area. And Zeno got embarrassed and kind of tried to hide it under his shawl, under his, under his robes. And Kratis saw him doing it and smashed it with his staff so that it poured all down. So Zeno was walking and weaving in and out these hookers with uh, lentil soup dribbling down his legs. And uh, he freaked out. And Kratis said to him, and this seems to have become a, uh, a saying in early Stoicism, so I have it tattooed in my former, I don't know if you can see that there. But he said, um, de non pepontas, which means nothing terrible has happened to you. And that, although it's only three words, is in a sense the core of Stoic philosophy. Because the Stoic, the central teaching of Stoicism is that nature is morally neutral. Nature itself is indifferent, but we project values onto it. So literally nothing terrible has happened to you you know, just, just some soup drying down your legs. But you are the one who's judging it to be terrible. The terribleness is a value judgment that you're projecting onto. You're choosing to interpret it that way. You know, like the lentil soup is just lentil soup. You know, like the, the people screaming at you and laughing is just vibrations in the airwaves or, or whatever. Like it, the, the terribleness of it is, is your reaction. It's, you know, someone else might uh, view it as trivial or they might even laugh at it. And so this, I think, is really, although it seems quite simple, it, it actually encaptures the, the central doctrine of, 
of stoicism. Yeah, yeah. Um, that reminds me of a phrase that me and my partner often use, which is, what's the story you're telling yourself? And that, that encapsulates it perfectly. Um, the other thing I've noticed about stoicism for me is that it has definitely changed how how I speak about certain things. Um, and I watch my language in different ways. For example, yeah. you know, he made me angry, she made me angry. I don't say that anymore because of stoicism, because I recognize that they didn't make me do anything. That's all on me. And so I found that it changed. And, and little things like that are very important because language is influence how our brain thinks about things and and how we interact with other people so if you think somebody made you angry then you're still going to be pissed off at them but if you recognize that they just did something you made a judgment about it and you're the one making you angry then you actually have power to do something about that because if the other person actually did make you angry then they are in control of you yeah i think what we're kind of leading into here actually is that a lot although there are many 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 people now who read marcus aurelius and read books and stoicism and kind of enjoy them you know i guess i'm going to say something a bit controversial but it's the truth it's an honest opinion about this um i i'm kind of a little bit surprised at how um to well to be very blunt how superficial a lot of the the discussion of stoicism is or, or more specifically like the, the i said the first book i wrote in stoicism i tried just to pick out what the actual practical exercises are Hardly any of those exercises are ever described in, in most of the articles and books on stoicism. That that baffles me in a way. So people talk about stoicism, but they, they very seldom like, talk about how to actually put it into practice. Now, you're talking just now about changing your language, and that's unusual. You know, most people who go on about stoicism, it, it's like it doesn't even occur to them that stoicism, in part, is a philosophy of language. Yeah? And I, I, I think we should do more... Just to highlight that to people, you know, what ancient Stoics did was to be mindful of their language. Like practicing Stoicism meant studying language and studying the relationship between language and emotions. And, you know, like, I guess one of the, another slogan that really sums that up that comes from Epictetus, Epictetus will say to his students, do not say oi poi, um, which in, uh, in Greek, um, in ancient Greek, uh, it's translated as usually do not say oh no or do not say alas. Like, and what he means is, and he explains this meticulously to them. He says, you know, if someone drags you off to prison, say someone has dragged me off to prison, don't say someone has dragged me off to prison, oh no, that's awful, how terrible. Like, and what he's saying is you need to make a distinction between the naturalistic description of the events, like sticking to the facts mm -hmm. and imposing a value judgment on it. And so what he's warning his students to do is to be conscious of this and not to add in emotive language because, you know, there's a war in a sense, or there's a tension um, between Socrates and the Stoics on one hand and the Sophists on the other hand the orators of celebrity orators of ancient Greece and Rome. And the, so the Stoics think this is what sophists do. This is the stock and trade of sophists. What sophists do is they trade in informal fallacies. They use emotive language. They try to whip up fear and anger in the audience. And they're um, like a, attention seeking. 
because that's how they earn money. Um, they they want to be celebrities. They try to get the biggest round of applause they can and literally compete against one another to get the biggest round of applause. Just like um, in the modern world, you know, celebrities and social media, that's pretty much how it works. Um, and this is one of the reasons that stoicism is very relevant today. It teaches us stoicism is a weapon that was designed to defend ourselves against sophistry. And I, I don't think people realize that, you know, because often when I see people arguing about stoicism, they often, like, they're, they're basically acting like sophists in many cases. And, you know, like, they're using sweeping overgeneralizations, they're, they're using emotive rhetoric, not only using those things, but kind of falling prey to them in a way that the, the Stoics want us to be cautious about. So this whole philosophy and therapy of language side of Stoicism tends to get neglected, and really it's the most relevant part of Stoicism today. It's, it could protect us against the baneful effects of social media and the, you know, the, the runaway uh, like chaos that is American, uh, in particular, news media like CNN and Fox, are sophists mm -hmm. like they trade in catastrophizing fear-mongering uh, provoking anger like they deliberately use language to pro uh, provoke and manipulate their audience um and the more they do that the stupider they make they literally make us stupider like by doing that to us uh, so you know I, I stoicism is like we inherit it as a set of tools to protect ourselves against this stuff. And I really, people that are into stoicism today, like I wish, like, you know, and I would like to kind of encourage them to realize that and take advantage of that aspect of stoicism. Like, you know, think more carefully uh, about the stuff that they're exposing themselves to and how it's actually affecting them. And what's missing in really is that the ancient Stoics studied logic. Like, Epictetus lectured his students on logic before he then sat down and had those discourses with them. And, you know, it's not necessarily the study of propositional calculus today. Like, you know, what, what really he wanted them to realize is the way that sophists manipulate people by using informal fallacies. And everyone can benefit from that. Like, you know, that, that's how the media work. Like, it's how social media works. People use emotive language, they use misleading metaphors, misleading analogies, they use causal fallacies, use the ad hominem fallacy, you know. These are all the weapons of the sophist. You see them on the internet, you know, every 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like the Stoics were rigorously trained in spotting those things and protecting themselves. But in modern Stoicism, we don't really, that's neglected. You know, we're not doing enough of that. Yeah, uh, which actually this reminds me, I just started reading last week, uh, Nonviolent Communication. I don't know if you've ever read that book. Um, and he specifically nails down and talks about this and deconstructs our language of 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 these exact things. Um, there was one example in it where he goes in and he's, he's doing a mediation between some teachers and the superintendent of a school. And he asked the teachers, okay, what is it that upsets you most about the superintendent? And they keep trying to go, well, he just talks too much or he wants to be the center of attention. And he's like, well, that you're describing a judgment. Can you do, can you tell me what it is that you are frustrated about 
without making a judgment about it. And these teachers like went around and around and they couldn't do it. And they said, this is too hard. And so he walked them through some exercises to be able to pinpoint this thing. And then when they brought the superintendent in, they were talking, they, you know, one of the teachers finally had enough courage because they had broken it down to just the basic thing. Like, you know, you tell us these stories that don't have anything to do with what we're talking about and, and we're ending up late and other things like that. And the principal went off into this big, long thing about it. One of the teachers said, hey, t- hey, can you can you stop? This doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. And this is exactly what we're what we're upset about is that you take over and you tell us a story about your life. You tell a story about the war, all of these things. And as I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, I, I kind of do that at some time. So it was a little bit humbling. But for me, it was really interesting because he was just deconstructing it of saying, what are the facts? Don't turn it into a personal thing. Don't make a judgment about this, about what he's doing. Just what are the facts? And it was so much more powerful because you're able to get past the story that you have in your head about the other person. Um, And you can just talk about the facts. And when you can talk about the facts, then you can talk about what each of you needs in your interactions as opposed to just making judgments about them. This is also to to a large extent, it's something that we do in cognitive behavioral therapy, like kind of across the board with clients as well. It crops up in different ways, there's different names for it, but it's a pretty common like recurring technique. And the Stoics refer to it repeatedly. I think the best expression of it is like I said, Epictetus just telling his students, you know, if someone takes you to prison, just say, I've been taken to prison, you know, don't then add all these value judgments and inferences about it and stuff. But you find it in Marcus Aurelius as well. They think that um, it's more honest. And they, they think when we impose value judgments to external events, we're always distorting things and, in a sense, lying or deceiving ourselves in a way. And so the way that Marcus Aurelius expresses this, Marcus Aurelius's nickname was Verissimus which means the most true. Like Hadrian gave him this nickname when he was a small child, and it seems to have become famous. He's referred to by that name later in life as well. But the meditations, he goes on about truthfulness a lot. He actually says that the, the truth is the most primordial of all gods at one point, so it's almost a religion. He makes it seem like truthfulness is a, like a religion to him. And it is in terms of stoicism that Marcus Aurelius in particular in the meditations, you can view what he's doing as building a philosophy of life around the almost the worship of truth and truthfulness. And part of that he sees as requiring spotting uh, sophistry, rhetoric, uh, fallacies and seeing through them, but also suspending value judgments in a sense. Um, and learning to articulate things in a more down-to-earth and objective manner Um, because he thinks that saying, alas, oh no, this is awful, is a a way of kind of um, adding a filter to our experience and and distorting the facts. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. So I'm going to give us one more question here. Uh, It doesn't have to take too long, and then we can kind of wrap this up. Um, and this was a question that I got off of Twitter and somebody wanted to know, why did Com- Commodus turn out so badly when he had such a sage like father as an example? Gosh, like I wrote a whole essay about that once. It's really long and involved. Um, so I'll give two answers to it. I'll try and keep them fairly short. The first one is in the ancient world, 
Socrates also had three sons who were known for being um, unphilosophical. And so that was treated as just a kind of uh, an example of how children don't always follow in their parents' footsteps and you can't really judge somebody. Um, I, I'm really surprised how many people today think that you can. Like, as a therapist, it seems like a really weird assumption to make. You know, apart from the fact that genetics makes a difference and, you know, like your, your children's uh, inherit uh, your genes, um, but not, like, not, they're not identical to yours. Like, so, you know, your kids might just inherently have personality traits that you don't have. Um, but also there's other influences in their life. You know, you, it's crazy to think that the parent, you know, your kids go to school, like, and they, they have friends and they watch TV and read books and stuff, like, you're not the only influence in their life. So, you know, the, the, the main thing, one of the main things that Stoics teach us is that we shouldn't overestimate how much control we have over external events. Like, Marcus could influence Commodus. You can lead a, hot, a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. But you can't force Commodus to become wise. Um, and Marcus also, I, I guess it's worth, so that's the first thing. Like, in the ancient world, they would have thought it's obvious that you can't control your children's personalities. And they wouldn't have blamed Marcus for that normally. Philosophers wouldn't anyway. Um, but also, Marcus probably, we can't be 100% sure, but Marcus probably didn't spend that much time with Commodus until Commodus was about 15 years old. And then from that point onwards, Commodus spent more time with Marcus because Marcus, there was a civil war and Marcus had him brought uh, to the military camp to accompany him. The main historian that explains this, if I remember rightly, is Herodian, who says that Commodus was not a naturally evil man, but he was naturally gullible and easily manipulated. And that there were a bunch of hangers on that latched onto him because he was wealthy and powerful and they tricked him or persuaded him to abandon the frontier after his father died to leave the frontier and to go back to rome and to just kind of throw parties and stuff like that um and so he kind of fell in with a bad crowd is how i guess how they're putting it and then that that gradually led to him being corrupted by their influence and he kind of started to drink more heavily like and, and i live more indulgent life his reputation was damaged like he became more desperate to cling on to power things kind of spiraled out of control for him um so that's the explanation that if we can believe it that the, the roman historians uh, gave and we were told though is also that marcus went out of his way to assign to find the best tutors from all over the empire that he could for to to bring up commodus and Marcus's son-in-law, um, uh, Tiberius Pompeianus, um, one of his generals, was, it, it seems, meant to be a kind of father figure or a mentor to uh, Commodus. Um, but what happened was that when Marcus died, uh, Commodus abandoned Pompeianus to, he left him in charge of the armies on the frontier and, and left him behind so he was no longer able to to influence him so it would be like he had a good mentor and teacher but he sort of ran away from him um and that was you know then he went into decline as marcus had tried to make arrangements but Commodus defied them yeah yeah that makes sense and i i mean i also found the question you know interesting that why would you blame the father for the son's behavior you know 
It'd be like blaming the son for the father's behavior. My dad was very violent, but you can't blame that on me that he was a violent person, for example. Um, so, yeah, I, I, but, it, you know, like I said, I, I promised people on Twitter that if they asked a question, I'd ask you that question as well. Um, but, yeah, it, but it is interesting, just like you said, how, you know, there's that, that, that debate of environment versus genetics. And in this case, you know, it seemed like Commodus, like you said, was it seemed to be much more gullible. And it's and to be, at least to me, to be somebody of character like Marcus Aurelius was and some of the other Stoics were, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of thoughtfulness and it takes a lot of daily effort to to instill those things in your life. It's, it's not something that comes naturally. And so if you're rich and wealthy and powerful and you can kind of do whatever you want, the easier thing is just to, you know, take off and have a good time and do whatever it is that you want, because that's easy. Building your character and building that strength, that's hard. And that takes a lot of work to do, even if you have the best tutors and all of these things and every advantage. I think also, like, if we, just kind of in addition to that, sort of as an aside, today when we look at successful, people come from successful families that, that like, fall very far like often drugs or alcohol, unfortunately, play a role in it. And they don't have the same way of articulating that, the same concept in the ancient world. But having studied the history of Marcus's reign pretty closely, I think it's pretty clear um, that the Roman historians think that Marcus's brother, Lucius Verus, was an alcohol, a raging alcoholic. And the Commodus probably, and some of these other figures from history, were probably men who had like what we would call today alcoholism like and maybe other associated problems and you know and then that can kind of lead on especially if you're a very powerful person and you're surrounded you have a lot of responsibilities you're surrounded by a lot of hangers on would be assassins you know one problem can often lead to another but i think part of commodus's downfall may have been alcohol entailed alcohol abuse yeah yeah i could definitely see that yeah addiction is always a, a challenging issue and i think almost i think from the beginning of history once we did have you know intoxicants i'm sure that uh, there are always people who have been struggling with that and you know unfortunately as as humanity has moved on we were recognizing that oftentimes these are physiological things and that they need to be treated differently and they're not just moral failings but you know your body craves those things so Excellent. Well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up here. I really appreciate having this conversation with you. Um, and your book comes out July 12th. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So July 12th, 2022, because I'm sure a lot of people will be listening to this after that happened. Uh, the book again is Verissimus. And I'm sure you can find it on Amazon, probably uh, Barnes & Noble, almost probably any online bookseller should have it for you. And uh, is and it's just being translated into English for now, or do you have plans to translate in other languages going forward? Uh, I think we've already agreed on it being translated into Brazilian Portuguese, and I think possibly it's going to like this the possibility that it might be translated into some other languages, but we'll find out about that in due course. So it will eventually be in other languages, but the one that's confirmed at the moment. Brazilian Portuguese. Excellent. Excellent. I, I know my listeners in Brazil will probably appreciate that. So, all right. Uh, any last words? Any last things you want to send out to my listeners? 
Yeah, I'd just encourage people like to carry on with a study of stoicism, but to practice it, you know. And if you're not, if people aren't really sure what to do, just practice the view from above is really easy to do. Marcus clearly says that he does it every day uh, in the meditations. Is certainly regularly he talks about using it. Read the passages towards the end of the meditations where he describes it. There's audio recordings that we make for Stoic Week that guide people through doing it. So I think that's a really easy way for people to kind of get into Stoic contemplative practices and, and make it into something that's more practical rather than just, you know, reading about it. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Thanks, Donald, for uh, coming on my podcast. And I wish you the best of luck with your book. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that's the end of this week's Stoic Coffee Break. As always, be good to yourself, be good to others, and thanks for listening. Hello, friends. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to patreon.com slash stoiccoffee and help support this podcast by becoming a patron. Also, swing by our website at www.stoic.coffee where you can sign up for our newsletter and buy some great-looking shirts and hoodies at the new Stoic Coffee Shop. Also, if you know of somebody that would benefit from or would appreciate this podcast, please share it. Word of mouth is always the best way to help this podcast grow. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.